0: Hey, thanks for listening to Cornerstone Church. You can find us on the web at akcornerstone.org. And we want you to know it's our prayer that the Holy Spirit will use this message to either save you through the good news about Jesus Christ, grow you into the likeness of Jesus, or send you to proclaim Jesus in the Spirit's power. What I want to start with is just a statement that will make sense in about five or ten minutes. The statement is this. We are just now beginning in the third section of Romans chapter 9. Section 1 was verses 1 to 5. Section 2, 6 to 13. And we are on verse 14 now that opens up section 3 of Romans 9 that goes down to the 18th verse. But in order to understand what Paul is talking about in the 14th verse and what follows down to verse 18, we need to first Make sure that we remember and are aware of what has come in the first 13 verses. It is imperative, particularly this morning and where we're going with verse 14, that you remember if you were here. If not, I'm going to just quickly review the highlights of the first two sections of Romans chapter 9. First section, verses 1 through 5, opens up with a dilemma. Paul, who is a Jew, who was the poster child for the good Jew, and then he met Christ and became a follower of Christ, but Paul looked at the Jewish nation in the opening of Romans chapter 9, and in the first three verses, he talks about the great anguish in his heart as he looks at his people, the Israelite people or the Jewish people. And the reason for his anguish is that they are accursed and cut off from Christ. That the vast majority of the Israelite people are outside of the blessings of God. They are under the condemnation of God, cut off from Christ, instead of enjoying the blessing of being a child of God through Christ. And he looks at the Jewish people and he says, My heart is broken over them. And then he shows the contrast in verses 4 and 5 in that first section, and he begins to talk about the incredible, unique privileges that the Jewish people had. Unlike anybody else in all the earth, the Jewish people had incredible and unique privileges from God. For example, God had revealed His glory to them in many and diverse ways. Performing great acts of wonder and power on their behalf. God had given to them His very law. He had actually carved it out of the stone mountain with His own finger and inscribed His law onto tablets and gave them to Moses to give to the people by which to govern the people. Unique, privileged position. God had given to the Israelite people the tabernacle. And with it, this system of sacrificial worship in which they could be engaged in a relationship with God, have His presence right there among them in the tabernacle. Incredible privileges. That's just a few that Paul lists. And God had given them promise after promise after promise throughout the Old Testament. Some of those promises were physical, literal, on this earth, land, and blessing. But the ultimate essence of the promise was that they would be with Him and reign with Him forever in glory. That's the setup. This dilemma, this incredible privileged people, unlike any other people on the face of the earth, yet in a wholesale fashion, almost across the board, they're accursed and cut off, not under God's blessing, but under His condemnation, headed for His wrath. Section 1. That's the setup for section 2, verse 6. And this verse really is probably the key verse of chapter 9, 10, and 11. It's really the all that follows all the way to the end of chapter 11 is really a springboard off of this verse right here in Romans chapter 9, verse 6. Paul says, I'm going to read verses 6 and 7, but it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel and not All are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. See, what Paul does here is he looks at this dilemma. He explains it in impassioned tones. And then he says, but let me tell you the truth. God's Word has not failed. So here's a question that we could ask of Paul. Paul, how can you say that? I mean, if God has made all of these countless promises to the Israelite people, to the Jewish people, and here they are in wholesale fashion, cut off from Christ, accursed, condemned, and on their way to hell, how can it be true that the Word of God has not failed? And what Paul does in verses 6 to verse 13 is he explains how that can be true. And what he says at the last part of verse 6 is that Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. You see, what he is saying there is that not every ethnic Israelite is a true Israelite. Not everyone born with the blood of an Israelite is truly a spiritual Israelite, a spiritual children, child of Abraham. Even though they are biological from his lineage, they are not necessarily of the spiritual lineage of Abraham. There's a remnant within the big group. There is within the nation of Israel a true Israel, a remnant. That's the point he is making in verses 6 and 7. And then what he does is that he proves his point by reaching into Old Testament history and he pulls out two examples to drive the truth home of what he is saying. He goes to Abraham and his kids, Ishmael and Isaac. And he says, those, those boys had the same father. Yet here's what happened. God chose one, Isaac, and not the other, Ishmael. One is the child of the promise, Isaac. The other is not Ishmael. And then he goes to a second illustration. Isaac's children, Jacob and Esau. And here, it's a much stronger illustration because Jacob and Esau have the same father and the same mother. But not only that, they're the same age. They were in the womb at the same time as twins. But yet, what did God do related to them? Let me read it to you in verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of Him who calls. There is... So much there, we spent an entire message just unpacking the truth of that statement a few weeks ago, but the point is this, that God chose Jacob and He did not choose Esau. And He did that for this reason, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. How is the choosing of Jacob and the passing over of Esau a movement toward the purpose of God in election continuing? Here's how the purpose of God in election is his glory, it's his glory. It's for the praise of His name. It is to exalt Him who does it all in our salvation so that we would not glory in ourself, but we would come to Him with full adoration and full praise and see the excellency of the election of God over our lives when we deserved it not, but He gave it freely so that He gets the praise and the worship that He is due. That's why God chose Jacob and not Esau before they were ever born or had done anything good or bad. Nothing to do with them. All to do with God, his election. So two illustrations. And here is the point that he is making Here is the interpretation of Romans 9, 6 to 13 that I have talked to you about for two Sundays. It is this, that God's election, His choosing those whom He will save is done freely and unconditionally. Freely, meaning it is all of His will and not of anything external to Him. He makes that decision all within Himself without any outside influence having sway over that decision. It is a decision only by God Himself. And it's unconditional as another way of stating that, even highlighting it strongly, and that is that those that He elects, it is nothing in them that they do do or will do or have done or believe or will believe it is all the work and will and decision of God unconditionally contingent upon the person I mean he just makes that truth so clear I I don't have the time to re-preach that but you need to have that in your mind that the subject matter that sets up verse 14 is this God's free and unconditional election. Then comes verse 14. Listen to what it says. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? You see what Paul is doing here is he's raising a question or raising an objection. He does this pretty frequently in Romans. You know, he's writing this Letter to a group of people who are not with him. He had spent a lot of time traveling all around the country of his day, city to city, group to group, had preached the gospel to thousands upon thousands of people. And when he did that, when he would preach his gospel, here's what would happen. There would be questions and objections that would rise up. Common. I mean, several that... You could just guarantee that when he preached about this subject, this would be an objection that would rise up, common in the human heart. And so what he is doing here in Romans chapter 9 verse 14 is he is identifying that objection based upon what he has just taught. Because the Romans are not there to raise it themselves, so he anticipates it shows them He knows what they're thinking as they're listening to Him expound upon the truth from verse 6 to 13. And so He raises the objection Himself, the question, and He says, in verse 14, again, what shall we say then? Or, is what I just said mean this? That there is injustice on God's part. Now, if I were to ask you a question here, as you I, I won't even I won't even talk about the Romans as they're listening to that. I'm talking about you and me. As you hear me preach about God's free and unconditional election, that it is something that He chooses in eternity past, in Himself and Himself alone, unconstrained by any outside influence, irregardless of anything that you had ever done, would do, have done, that He just determines who He's going to save. What does that cause this is a rhetorical question, but what does that cause in the human heart, in the human mind? I mean, what just rises up there? I've talked to you, some of you, about this. and What exactly? That's not fair! That is not fair! God, how can you... how Paul, how can you say that God just chooses irregardless of anything in the person, those whom he is going to elect. That is not the way it should work, God. That's not fair. That's not right, i.e., you're unrighteous. You're unjust if that's the way that you do it. I mean, that would be just a common issue in the heart and mind of people that would hear Paul preaching. And so Paul raises the objection. Now just think through this for a moment. Verse 14 is such a powerful tool. I just seeing this this week. Verse 14 is such a powerful tool to use as a diagnostic tool to see if verses 6 to 13 have been interpreted correctly. I'm going to show you what I mean by that. So what I've been preaching to you for the past two weeks is that Romans chapter 9, 6 to 13 is about God's free and unconditional election. All of God, not contingent upon us. So we can go to verse 14 and say, does verse 14 either disprove that interpretation or prove that interpretation? And what verse 14 does is it rises up and says, not fair, not fair. Fair. you're Paul, you're making God out to be an unjust God so that, I would put this to you, it must be the right interpretation because that is the objection that is raised. Because if Paul wasn't saying that, they wouldn't be saying in objection to his teaching, Paul, you're making God out to be unjust. How can you say that God's election is just absolutely in Himself and Himself alone, and we have nothing to say in whether He would elect us or not. You see, the very fact that Paul raises the objection that was commonly raised when he preached his gospel is a validation of the interpretation of That Romans 9, 6 to 13 is all about God's free and unconditional election. Then comes his emphatic statement. I'm going to come back to this line of reasoning in a minute. But let me look at his emphatic statement in verse 14. So he asks the question, Does this mean that there's injustice with God? And he makes this three-word emphatic statement, very strong in the Greek, by no means. In other words, ridiculous idea. I mean, God is God. How could there be injustice with God? He's God. That's what he's saying in that three-word statement, by no means. But then watch what he does in verse 15. Verse 15 opens with a small three-letter word, for Just... Focus on that word for a minute. What is that word there for? It's there because Paul is saying, I'm going to give you the reason or the basis for the emphatic statement that I just made that it is ridiculous or impossible that there could be any injustice with God. I'm going to tell you now why. It is ridiculous that we would consider God being an unjust God if He elects freely and unconditionally. That's the setup. For. There's no way God can be unjust. For. Because. And then He says. For. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. What Paul does right here is what he does quite often in this letter is he again reaches back into the Old Testament He goes back to Exodus chapter 33, and he grabs a quote out of Exodus 33 to prove the point he is making right here about God's free and unconditional election. So what you need to do in order to understand the quote is you have to understand context to understand text. So let me give it to you quickly. Exodus chapter 33, Moses has led the people out of Israel, out of their bondage and slavery. He 's led him out into the wilderness. he is in desperate need of God to help him take them through, and so he is talking to God about god's leading God's promises, and then he asked God this question: God show me your glory, show me your glory. let me read it for you exodus thirty three eighteen and nineteen Moses said, "Please show me your glory verse nineteen and He, God, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh in the Hebrew. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. I want you to see what is happening here in this text because only then will you understand the power of the point Paul is making in Romans 9.15. Moses says to God, God, I need to see your glory. I got this unbelievable task that's way bigger than any man can accomplish. I need you. I want you to show me your glory. And so God says this to Moses. Moses. Okay, Moses, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to respond to your request for me to show you my glory. I'm going to have all my goodness passed by you. And then he declares his name, the Lord Yahweh. The Lord Yahweh, the one who is in charge. But then he doesn't stop there. He doesn't just say, I'm going to have my, in response to your request to see my glory, I'm going to have my goodness pass before you and declare my name the Lord. But then God gives a commentary in verse 19. Right after he identifies his name, he says, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. So do you see what's happening here? God, show me your glory. And God says, Moses, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord. And here's what that means. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. In other words, the very essence of my glory is the fact that I, the Lord, exercise freely the giving of my mercy. I give it to whomever I choose to give it to. That's what makes me the Lord. It's the fact that I exercise my mercy. It is actually the essence of what it means to be God. Nothing outside of me influences me to do anything. I am completely self-existent and self-determining. I am God. And what that means related to you is that I Give mercy to whom I want to give mercy to, and I have compassion on whomever I want to have compassion. That's what my name means. That's who I am. It's the very essence of my being. That's the verse that Paul reached back into and pulled out into Romans chapter 9 verse 15 to drive the point home that God has the right to give mercy wherever he wants to give mercy. Why? Because he is God. And so what we cannot say is that he is unjust, unfair, He has the right to do whatever he wants to do. He's Yahweh. He's God. And he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy. And he has compassion on whom he has compassion. That is just what God does. That's who he is. His very essence. So it is an incredibly powerful point that Paul is making so astutely, as he reaches back there and brings that quote and the meaning forward to drive the truth of free and unconditional election home. Now, let me take the reasoning that we were using a step further. I said to you that we can look at verse 14 and use it as a diagnostic tool to see if we correctly interpreted verses 6 to 13. Let's go a step further. Let's say that we didn't, I didn't interpret Romans 9, 6 to 13 correctly. That it's not about God's free and unconditional election. That it doesn't mean that God... in in and of himself alone, determines what he is going to do, including who he's going to save. Let's say I interpreted that incorrectly. And Paul states the objection, because cross the board, you think it, I think it, when we hear that teaching, we say unfair, unjust. So, if that's the wrong interpretation, what would Paul have done in verse 15? Once he had raised the objection. What would he have done? I think we can pretty accurately, not verbatim, but the idea we can say what he would have done. He would have done this. Wait a minute, you misunderstood me. You 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 misunderstood Romans 9, 6-13. I wasn't saying that God has the right to choose whomever He wants to choose and elect whomever He wants to elect because He's God. You misunderstood that. Let me restate it. Let me get it right for you because you've grossly misunderstood me. Now, if That was the case. I'm pretty confident Paul would have done something like that. But instead, what did Paul do? Verse 15. He not only doesn't do that, he drives the point even deeper with an even more forceful statement. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. You see, Moses is like the trump card. Right? Moses is probably the most influential character of Jewish history. And he goes right back to Moses and a conversation Moses has with God. And he grabs a quote that reinforces this interpretation that Romans 9 6 to 13 is all about God's free and unconditional election. And the point he makes to drive that home is this. God, as the Lord, as Yahweh, has the right to exercise His mercy freely. He has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy, and He hardens whom He wants to harden. You see, what Paul has done here throughout this chapter In verse 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11 and 12 and 13 and 14 and now in 15. He just keeps nailing the truth of God's election home deeper and deeper and deeper. He's going to continue doing it. We're going to see that next week. Then he comes to verse 16. And yet again... He reinforces the truth of God's free and unconditional election with this statement, so then. What does that mean, so then? It means, let me summarize what I just said. Let me, let me wrap it up into another statement, another way to reword it. And here it is. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Who's going to be saved? It doesn't depend upon human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. It doesn't depend upon human exertion. It doesn't depend upon what you do or ever will do. You see, that's a timeless statement. It doesn't say it depends not On anything a person has done, it just says in a blanket statement, it doesn't depend at all on human exertion or on any action, anything a person does. That's past, present, or future. That's a categorical statement. But I want you to notice he takes it a step further. He doesn't just talk about action. He brings in here the human will. So then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. In other words, not only is it not the action, past, present, or future, that is absolutely unconnected to those that God chooses to have mercy on, but so is the will of man absolutely unconnected. A person's desire, a longing, a willing to do something to get something done, that is not what's going to influence God related to whom He will have mercy on because God is Yahweh. He is the self-existent and self-determining God and as such, His very essence is that He operates in this way. He has mercy on whom He wants to have mercy and He has compassion on whom He wants to have compassion. And He makes that decision all in the counsel of his own decree and will of which we cannot understand. Only what he reveals to us in the eternal counsels of God can we hope to get a grasp on. But even then, some of it is so difficult. Now, I'm just about out of time, but I, there's, a, there's a few things here that I just am compelled to share. I'm going to just tell you my story, a little more of my story, uh, quickly, and my own development and growth in understanding here of Scripture. Twelve years ago and backward. Many of those, I'm lead pastor of this church. I did not embrace at all the free and unconditional election of God. And here was the position I found myself in. As I'm looking at that now, I can just explain this. I, at least I can just see it so clearly. I knew that there were verses about God's election, about God's predestination. About God's effectual call. But I couldn't square those with the verses that were so clear to me about us choosing and us having faith for salvation. And so here's what I did. Here's what I did. I embraced those verses that said that we choose God and that we have to have faith. And I saw them as such a contradiction to the verses about election and predestination and God's effectual calling that I just had to reject that doctrine. Not say that it didn't say in the Bible that God elects because I knew that it did. I just didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know how to square it with my doctrine. And so I just walked around it and... and prayed that God would help me to figure out how to explain it adequately because I knew it was there and I had this discomfort in my heart about not being able to reconcile because I just saw them as diametrically opposed ideas. That's very different than where I'm at now. Here's where I'm at now. I can in absolute good conscience and peace in my heart, hold both of those truths firmly without any contradiction in me. That I can hold the truth that says, I have to choose God. I have to accept Christ. I have to put my faith in Christ. We have to. The Bible is clear about that. Very clear. I've always believed that. But what I have discovered is that the Bible is also very clear that God elects and that God predestines and that God effectually calls. The clearest concise sequence of statements of that is Romans 8, 29, and 30 where that sequence is given in a five-fold step. But the point is this. I can hold both of those now. And say, they're not a contradiction. They're a paradox to my limited understanding, my finite mind, but they're not a contradiction. And here's the reason that they're not. Yes, I have to believe. Yes, I have to choose. But I can't believe and choose unless God first chooses me and gives me the faith to believe. You see, I can't choose Him unless I have been elected by Him and effectually called to come to Him. It's that calling that enables me to have the faith and to repent because prior to that I'm dead. I am an enemy of God. I'm in slavery to sin. I am, direct quote from Scripture, I am a captive of Satan to do His will. That's what it says about the unsaved. How can that person, a captive of Satan to do his will, be one that chooses and runs to God? They can't. They're dead. They're enemies. They can't understand spiritual things. And so the way that it works in cooperation now, I see, is that, yes, I have to choose and have faith, but I am never going to do that unless God first chooses me and calls me and gives me faith and grants me repentance. Then I come to Him. I willingly run to Him. Do you hear what I said there? I willingly run to Him. I am not made to run to Him. I am not forced to come to Him. That's not what the effectual call means. It means that what God does in the call is that He regenerates my heart. He wakes me from death. I look to Jesus now. I see Him for who He is. That's regeneration. That's life. What I never saw before, I see. I see the truth for what it is. I see my own sin. And I see the beauty of grace. And I say, I want that. Not, oh, God's making me take that no i want that it's the greatest thing in the universe so i have a new will now and willingly i run to it he doesn't by compulsion grab me by the ear and drag me there i jump up from death alive and i sprint to the savior who i love now you see that's the way it works that's the way it works It's not a force thing. We're not made robots. We are for the first time at regeneration made truly human and alive. Before that we were dead. You see, that's the way it works so that what I can do now is I can hold both of those truths, my choice and my faith without trying to throw out the election and predestination and effectual call of God. I don't need to do that. There is so much evidence for this side over here. It is overwhelming. Now that I saw it, Now my eyes were opened, I see it all over in the Word of God. Almost everywhere that I turn, there is hints at implicit statements or explicit statements about God's election or His effectual calling. And so I hold those together now. And here's the way that I view this, the way that I believe it's going to take place. Those are not contradictory truths, but they're a paradox. And my finite mind has this box of how far it can go. Some of your minds are bigger than mine. They could go further. But what you will never find in a finite mind is if you take this truth of my choice and my faith my accepting Christ, and the truth of God's choosing me and predestining me and effectually calling me unto Himself, and you try to follow those down the path to see if they ever meet, come together in agreement, your mind is limited and it's going to end and they're going to still be separated and moving. You're not going to find the end of the path. But here's what I'm absolutely convinced of. It says that when Jesus returns with the second coming and He comes to take His people home, when we see Him as He is, we're going to be transformed in the twinkling of an eye to become like Him. Fully mature. I don't mean we're going to be Jesus, but our character and our desires are going to be like Him. Our mind is going to be expanded. And you know what I believe we're going to see? We're gonna be able to see far enough and we're gonna find out that those two seemingly contradictory points are gonna meet in the person of Jesus Christ. Perfectly, And we're going to say, Oh, I see it now. I see it now. It was true. It is so perfect. The wisdom is everywhere. I could never see it before. But in Jesus, there's the answer. He first chooses me. He elects me. He calls me. And I choose Him and put my faith in Him. They're both perfectly true and united in the person of Jesus Christ. So, Conclusion, application. There's maybe a lot of directions we could go here. But one thing, most certainly, and I've said this in different ways before, but one thing most certainly is it should do this. It should cause us to be stripped of every pretense of any concept of our Own merit or worthiness, so that we are absolutely. Undone. I don't mean in a bad way, but we're undone before God and we see ourselves as we are hopeless without Him. But we come to Him and say, Oh God, look at who You are. Look at Your greatness, Your glory, Your choice of me. It blows my mind and I give You the worship and the praise that You deserve because You did and do and will come complete all of it, not me, so that I stay dependent upon him, and so that I stay in a place of worship and abject humility, but incredible confidence, incredible confidence. Here's the second truth. Confident that I'm not maintaining his salvation in my own power. He's doing it. The God that started it is going to carry it on and he's going to complete it because he's God and he has mercy on whom he has mercy and he has compassion on whom he wants to have compassion and if he's determined that from eternity past that that's you, it's going to happen. Even if right now you hate God, it's going to happen. Even if right now you're an enemy and you're sitting there in your chair saying, I hate coming here. My parents make me come here. My spouse, I do it for my spouse, but i sick of this stuff. I promise you, if you're one of the elect, it's going to happen. Because in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, you who are dead are going to come alive. And you're going to see Jesus as the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most valuable thing in the universe. And you're going to run into his arms. And he's going to scoop you up and say, you are my elect, you're my child, and you're going to be with me forever. Would you please stand? Let's pray. Oh, Father. God, I really hope this is true. I hope that was... um, My passion not for a show. I want that to be the force at all of this message. I want your spirit to take your truth and send it in power into our hearts and into our minds so that it rises up into a climax of praise to you. And a posture of dependence upon you. And a confidence of security in you. And a commitment to take your good news to those that do not know it. Because you're the God that not only determines the ends, those that you will save, but the means to the ends. And the means is you use us. That's the way you're going to do it. So help us, Lord, with courage and excitement, not thinking that we accomplish anything, but just looking with anticipation as we share the truth of Jesus, who you're going to reach out and grab. And bring to yourself. Just to do that in increasing measure. As a church. In the name of Christ I pray. Amen.